Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. The Lord be with you. He is risen. I could do a whole sermon and just say nothing but that for about 20 minutes. I'd be, I'd, that would fill my day. Dear friends in Christ, our gospel lesson for today uh, includes a passage that is referenced in the small catechism by Martin Luther when he describes the office or the power of the keys. Jesus confers authority to the disciples on this evening of the first day of his resurrection. The first day of his resurrection. Let's put this in context. Jesus is already at work equipping his disciples with additional tools to go out into the world to proclaim the gospel. This is the evening. He's been busy all day. It started at sunrise when he appeared to Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. Later in the day, he would walk with two disciples who had been saddened by the loss of their teacher. They were leaving Jerusalem. They were on the road to Emmaus, their hometown, and Jesus interrupted them. And now in the evening hours of Resurrection Day, Jesus is still at work. He pays a not-so-ordinary visit to the disciples who are still locked in an upper room for fear that they would be the next ones crucified. They were afraid that the Romans would do to them what had been done to Jesus. Ten disciples were there. Ten of the original disciples were there. As we know, Thomas was not there, and Judas Iscariot has taken his own life. They're in the room, and Luke tells us that Jesus came and stood among them. They didn't say Jesus knocked on the door and came in. Jesus stood among them. Locked doors are no obstacle to Jesus anymore. He simply appears in the room. We're talking about the post-resurrection Jesus. All right? He's fully manifested in his divine state. His divine attributes are free to do as he wills. Even though he is still human, there are no physical barriers to prevent Jesus from revealing himself to others. And he proves that on the very first night to the people who needed to hear it the most. And what are the first words Jesus speaks to the disciples who spent the weekend in hiding, in unbelief, let's face it? No longer believers. The entire weekend... Afraid that they will be next. How does Jesus, who has borne all of this sorrow, who has suffered beyond our imagination or comprehension, who has spent brutal hours of dying in the worst possible way and the silence of being entombed on the side of a mountain for an entire weekend, how does he break ice with these fledgling flock of disciples? Peace with you. Shalom. Peace be with you. Some of us would have had a whole lot of knee-browing and butt-kicking to do with them, right? We'd have been so mad at them. I told you this. I just told you so, didn't I? Not Jesus. Peace be with you. 
Luke's the crown. Luke, and Luke, Luke says that the reaction of the disciples were that they were startled and frightened. <laughs> Do you think? Yeah. Who wouldn't be? But John skips that part. John wants to focus on the joy of hearing that traditional greeting from the mouth of their master. Peace be with you. John, who is the only one that saw the worst of the worst on that Friday, now just wants to relish in the joy of the moment. Then Jesus goes on and after that to give even further proof when, and turns to Mary, her claim that she has seen Jesus alive, he now shows the disciples his hands and the proof in his side. This is proof beyond doubt, historical evidence, that he's a risen Lord appearing now in his glorified body. He's Christ born of Mary, nailed to the cross, risen from the dead, right in front of your face. Proof. Jesus didn't waste any time giving proof. Uh, and the very first day, he sets out to prove to his disciples and to establish the truth of his claim to be the Son of God, the Messiah. In this first day, he visits 14 people, starting with those closest to him, those who have been in various states of grief and mourning, denial and unbelief in the previous 72 hours. Those are the ones that need it the most. What lies ahead? Because proof of his resurrection is not the only thing Jesus is bringing to the disciples on this first evening. He's bringing with them an assignment. Beyond the greetings, he brings them an assignment and a task that's very important to their future, their future, and to the future church that they will build. He says, peace be with you again. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. How many here had a military experience? Yeah. For us, that means here's your marching orders. Go. You don't have a chance to get out of that. No, no, we don't have any hardship discharges. Go. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's their marching orders. <coughs> I would imagine they're a little confused at that point. Notice, though, that Jesus doesn't point to Peter. Peter, my bull in the china closet, you're the leader now. No. John can't come up and say, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved, I'll take over. No. Jesus treats everyone as equal. All the remaining disciples. There's no distinction among them. It doesn't matter your name. You're now an apostle. No special privilege. No standing above others. No lording over anybody else. You all have equal authority. It's peace, not position. It's peace, not prideful power. Those days are gone. They're gone. Jesus assured that equality when he breathed on them. And that's important. For John points that out. Why is that important? The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. The Hebrew word is ruach. They mean the same things. Wind, spirit, breath. The early church father Augustine writes about this moment. That bodily breathing proceeding from the body with the feeling of bodily touching was not the substance of the Holy Spirit, but a declaration by a fitting sign that the Holy Spirit proceeds not only from the Father, but also from the Son. 
That, my friends, is a reaffirmation. You should recognize that as part of a description that we do every other week in the Nicene Creed. I, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with whom the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. We proclaim that. We confess that. It is this gift of the bodily breath of the risen Savior that gives Jesus, gives the Holy Spirit and peace to equip these guys for an important task ahead. He's about to assign them a very difficult task. So he hands over to the disciples the keys to the kingdom. It is like a peaceful passing of the torch of faith and of the future of the church. So what exactly is the key to the kingdom? It's time for a little catechesis. What is the office of the keys? Luther tells us the office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to the church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from unrepentant sinners so long as they do not repent. Where is this written? St. John writes in chapter 20, If the Lord breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Those words show that the keys give to all the apostles alike and that all the apostles are sent forth equally alike because the keys do not belong to the person. They do not belong to one particular man. They belong to the church. It starts with the church. That church would have its beginning in the 50th day, the day we call Pentecost. Probably in the same upper room where they were on this day. Jesus grants the keys first and directly to the church. This is why it is first the church who has the right to call. Why is it called the office of the keys? This authority first given by Christ to his apostles works like a key to open heaven by forgiving sins and to close heaven by not forgiving them. What are we to believe according to these words? We are to believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by Christ's divine command, in particular when they openly exclude, when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the various congregations and they absolve those who do repent of their sins and want to do better, it is just as valid and as certain even in heaven as if Christ Jesus, our dear Lord, dealt that upon us himself. Thus the church publicly exercises the office of the keys by the command of Christ, by calling pastors to carry out the office of the keys publicly in his name and by, on behalf of the congregation. Thus the pastoral office is a divine institution and anyone seeking it should not take light of that. It is as humbling as one can get. What does it mean for the Christian Lutheran hearing these words? In God's proclamation, it means that you should be confident. 
you should never doubt that the words of absolution that you received this morning, spoken by me because of Christ and through Christ, upon hearing your repentant sinful condition, you should say as being God's voice and pronounced by God's command. I am just the vessel. He is the one who forgives you. Don't ever doubt that. Don't ever put me at a pedestal. As I said last week, I'm not comfortable that far off the ground. Jesus is telling them, peace be with you and peace be with you so that they would have the peace to go out and do what they do that we might have what they gave and that we might find the same peace. He says to his disciples shortly before his death, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the word world gives you, do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You and I have been giving marching orders of a sort too, have we not? God gave those orders to us when he passed along to us a model for prayer, the Lord's Prayer. It smacks right there in the fifth petition, the one that should cause us to have a lump in our throat if we are not doing what it says we do. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Not when I trespass, when I forgive those. Not if I forgive those. As we forgive those. In that petition, we pray that our Father in heaven would not look on our sins or deny our prayers because of them. For we are neither worthy of the things we are to pray for, nor have we deserved them. But he asked that we, we, we asked that he would give them all to us by grace because we sin so much. And we surely deserve nothing but his punishment. So then we ought to joyfully and peacefully and boldly forgive and gladly do the good to others who sin against us. Just as we daily sin much against God and yet he forgives everything through grace, so we too must ever, ever Forgive our neighbor. If therefore you do not forgive, then do not think that God forgives you. Because he doesn't. And that is at once troubling and yet very predictable in our world today. Many people espouse the Lord's prayer, and, but they don't abide what the Lord commands. To forgive others. Christians have been blessed to receive the most precious treasure on earth, the gospel of forgiveness. But often they keep it hidden inside of them. Even as Luther said that the Father expects us to come to him boldly and confidently when we pray, the Lord expects us to carry out the assignments which all believers have been given. All of his disciples, equally. No lording over. All of us. And that is to spread the gospel. The message of forgiveness and salvation but to do so in peace and with Christian love. One of the Book of Concord special books to read is the Schmalkald Articles. 
something hard to pronounce it. He says, the office of the keys is a special God-given way of applying the gospel to the individual. God is super abundantly generous in his grace, first through the spoken word by which the forgiveness of sin is preached in the whole world. This is the particular office of the gospel. Second, through baptism. Third, through the holy sacrament of the altar. Fourth, through the power of the keys. And also through mutual conversation and consolation. Mutual conversation and consolation. That's where you and I come into the picture. Peace be with you ought to kick in in mutual conversation and in consolation, in good times and in bad. Christ's peace goes with you wherever you go. It is there in the act of your forgiving and in the act of your being forgiven. Thomas thought he knew better than that. He couldn't accept that. He thought he had to be shown the ugly nails and scars in his side. But he, what he didn't see, he didn't know, he didn't comprehend, is that even in his moment of unbelief, even in his doubting, he might have peace. Peace because of the all-availing sacrifice of his master, his Lord and Savior on the cross. And not just peace in that moment of unbelief and fear and doubt, but peace and the assurance of peace forever. That's the peace that John held close to him. That's the peace that John brings out in his gospel so vividly at the end of the gospel lesson. As close as he held his master to him, as close as Jesus held John to him. John would write of that peace many, many, many years later. When he was on the island of Patmos, after Jesus came to him again, this time in a vision. Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That should remind us then first of our unworthiness, which God's surpassing grace does not count against us. And then of the sins of others to whom we are supposed to equally forgive as God does and as we are equally forgiven. As Jesus treated the equally on, those disciples equally on that resurrection day, he expects that equally of you and me. And he delivers that forgiveness right there. You just saw in the confession and the absolution. Equally to every one of you, that you might also forgive equally to those who have sinned against you. God has planned for our limitations in that regard too. He gives us the gospel to boldly proclaim it. He gives us the means of grace by which we are nourished and strengthened. 
He gives us the Holy Spirit and faith in our baptism. He gives us his only son to die for us that we might be saved. His death and resurrection are the surest and purest sign of God's love for you. A love that forgives and that calls you to forgive in his name as well as, as be and live in peace. Yes, it's a peace that passes our human understanding. But it's also a peace that should keep us in Christ Jesus in the weakest of times, in the hardest of times, and to recognize and honor God for it in the best of times, in all times. But there's more. He gives you all this and more. Christ gives us this promise with the Apostle John boldly announces in the first chapter of the last book of his, of his, his book, the last chapter of his book. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes on the earth, and wail on account of him. Even so, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Revelations 1, 8. Peace be with you. Shalom. Those are Christ's words, not mine. Paul captures the essence of your discipleship and mine as, as the fruit which we bear when it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. He writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness, self-control. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And let us not think that that's easier said than done. It's as simple as trusting in Jesus and being at peace in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Peace be with you. Shalom. Amen. We continue now with our...